You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning, everybody. Uh, that was quite an introduction, and <laughs> appreciate it. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, as Ant said, I am, my name is Devin Coleman, and I uh, am a pastoral intern at Columbia Presbyterian Church right down on Sumter Street. Uh, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to come and to share a word with y'all on this morning. I've known Ant for like uh, like a year or two now. I think it's going on two years. Um, and I already consider him uh, as a mentor in the faith, uh, especially as um, solid African-American, uh, just gospel Bible preachers in the city. So I really look up to you, Ant. Um, he's really helped me out a lot with some tough teachings I've had to do already um, and just really has served as a as a really, really humble um, mentor for me. So that's been great. Thank you, Ant. I really appreciate it. Y'all have a gym. Um, and also, thank you to you guys. Y'all were very welcoming uh, when I came in. It was nice. I haven't been in a setting like this for a long time, so I'm ready to get into it, if y'all don't mind. Uh, so let's see here. Our text this morning will be from Job chapters 38 to 42. I'm not going to read the whole entire chapters, because uh, that's too long. But what I will do is I'll read the first 11 verses of chapter 38, and then we'll turn over to chapter 42, and then we'll read those first six verses, and that'll be our scripture reading for this morning. Just going to kind of get you situated, this is going to be more of a thematic sermon, uh, so we'll be looking at a ton of texts quickly throughout over a span of time. I'll try not to hold y'all too long, but I just want to let y'all know that it has been a minute since I've been able to preach this long. <laughs> so anyway... Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 11. But before we hear from God's word, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Uh, we know that it's holy and it's inspired, um, Lord, and everything that it says is, is from you. And so we ask now that your spirit would walk us through this text. The Lord, is challenging for us. I ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts that they, um, Lord, might see you and all of your greatness and all of your glory and all of your goodness. Um, humble us, Lord. Convict us. Um, and would you do all of this, Lord, for your glory. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Job 38, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Flip over with me to chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. And Job answered the Lord and said, 
I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have ordered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, so far, this is God's holy word. May he add a blessing to both its reading and its hearing. I like to preach this morning from the topic. It's a long title, but I'm going to simplify it later on. But I like to preach from the title, Dress for Action, Encountering the God Who is Bigger Than Us. Dress for Action, Encountering the God Who is Bigger Than Us. So there's a book by a guy by the name of Edward T. Welch. Um, it's titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. And he uses this to talk about how Christians deal with peer pressure, codependency, and the fear of man. But I want to co-opt that this morning and say we live in a world of people whose default understanding of themselves and of God is that they are big and he is small. You don't need to actually listen to our conversations, look at our social media accounts, the music we listen to, the movies we watch, everywhere it's look at me, look at my house, look at my car, look at my bank account, my job, look at our progress as a human race. We've come so far. We've sent a guy to the moon. We've invented so many great things. Recently, we've just developed a vaccine for COVID-19. We've done all these things. We're so great. And of course, they're not wrong in and of themselves, right? Right? Yet so often, we use these things to gain glory for ourselves and for opportunities to say, look at me. Look at how great I am. Look at how great we are. And many of us, myself included, in this very room, even those of us who are born-again Christians and believers, we still wrestle with this, don't we? Believing ourselves to be big and God to be small. And that's exactly what God goes after in this text today with Job. And so the main thing I want you to see from this is that in this text, we see where the glorious God humbles Job and draws his attention from himself and his suffering to the God who is bigger than he is. I'll say it again. The glorious God humbles Job and draws his attention from himself and his suffering to the God who is bigger than he is. But if I could put it in simpler terms, if you need to tell your friends what you learned about or what you heard from in the word today, the Lord simply wants Job to see that his view of God is too small. The Lord wants Job to see, Job, your God is too small. Now, for those of you who might be a little lost with where we are, uh, this God-fearing man named Job has lost everything that he has. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his family. He's lost his health. And when you think about it, Job is actually never told why. As a matter of fact, the majority of the book is dedicated to seeking answers for this very question. 
And of course, we get the prologue, right? We know the the council, the meeting that happens beforehand between God and Satan and God loosing the reins and allowing Satan to afflict Job. We see that, but Job doesn't see that. So throughout the book now, you got Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. They say that Job's suffering is due to, to some previous sin that he had committed, right? That's what they say. They say, Job, you've messed up, and if you could just find this one sin and repent of it, your suffering would all be over. Now, they're wrong, of course, and Job actually destroys their arguments and defends his integrity, showing that his suffering was not due to some sin that he had committed. So we've gotten that out of the way. That's, That's the beginning half of the book, but yet something happened. As Job begins to sit in his suffering, as he begins to wallow in the suffering, Job becomes, understandably, a little bitter. And in defending himself so rigorously, he begins to suggest that he is so right about his situation that God might actually be the one who's in the wrong. Job begins to question the very justice and righteousness of God. Actually, in chapter 27, verse 2, he said that God has taken away my right. That's to say that God has acted unjustly towards him. And in doing so, he makes himself to be too big and God too small. Now, a young man named Elihu You'll see later on in the, in the book of Job, actually calls Job out on this, but we don't hear from him too much before God finally shows up in chapter 38, where we are this morning. Now, it's interesting that up to this point, we've heard nothing from God. It's been 33 to almost 34 chapters of just men talking. And then God finally shows up in chapter 38 and answers Job out of a whirlwind. And what does he do. What does he do? It appears to me that God graciously bombards Job with the greatness of his glory. The text suggests that God does this to to draw Job's attention from himself, from his suffering, and up to the God who is bigger than he is. So you say, all right, preacher, I hear you talking about this. Where do we actually see this? How does he do this? Well, he does it quite simply in his answer to Job, right? Look right there at the beginning, and I'll, for the sake of, I guess, splitting this up, I'm trying to put this under some headings. It's kind of hard because it's like five chapters, but we'll just do this. So it's one. Let's look first at the answer of the Almighty God, the answer of the Almighty God. So God reveals his bigness to Job in his answer to him. He says to Job, Job, dress for action, right? And I was like, what What does that even mean, dress for action? Do we talk like that? So I was like, I'm going to put it as a sermon title. Uh, He says, Job, dress for action. And the Hebrew there could actually be rendered, you might actually see it in the footnote if you're using a study Bible. It says, gird up your loins. Like, gird up your loins. In other words, God is telling Job, get ready. One commentator actually even says, this is an image drawn from like the world of wrestling, right? Job is being asked to enter into combat with Yahweh. And so God is essentially saying, all right, Job, 
You've been calling for me for Lord knows how many chapters, and now it's finally time for me to speak. Job, you wanted me. You got me. Here I am. Let's take it outside. (laughs) So he's been questioned by Job, and God now shows up, and he says, Job, I got some questions of my own for you. He says, beginning in chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, I'm actually going to go to 3 there. He says, I will question you and you make it known to me. And then he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Now notice, and this actually kind of messed me up, y'all. Notice God still doesn't answer Job's question as to why he's suffering, does he? I mean, he doesn't even pretend to. Instead, he goes straight to pointing out Job's inadequacies. In other words, he goes to pointing out all the stuff Job can't do. And if we're being honest, and I was, I was thinking about this as I was studying this, I said, Lord, this, this just seems unfair, right? Like this can't, this can't actually be how you're going to answer this man who's lost his family, who's lost his wealth, who's lost his health. He's just been blasted by his friends for Lord knows how long, and this is how you're going to treat him? This doesn't even seem on topic, right? Job is suffering, and this is how you treat him? And yet, if the Spirit gives you eyes to see, the Lord is doing something incredibly gracious here. You see, the Lord knows exactly what Job needs right now. He says, Job, you don't need a pep talk. You don't need a motivational speech. He says, you don't even really need an explanation for your suffering. What you need to do or what you need to be is kept from the sin of pride. God says, what's the remedy for this pride? He says, Job, you need a clearer vision of the almighty God. So God asks Job in chapter 38, verses 3 through 7, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And of course, the answer for Job is, I wasn't there. (laughs) I wasn't there. And God says, do you know who was there? God God says, I was there, Job, for I was the one who laid the foundation. He moves on then in verses 19 to 21 in chapter 38. He continues with his questions for Job. And this time he points out the fact that Job couldn't possibly give the answer to these questions because Job wasn't even born. What does he say? He says, where's the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the path to its home? He says, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Being a little sarcastic, God is saying, Job, you can give the answer to this question, right? Because you were born, right? You were there. And of course, the answer for Job again is, no, I was not. And God says, but you know who was there? I was. And I know the way because I'm the one who made the way. He says, I'm the one who created the light and the darkness. In fact, there is no number of days for the ancient of days. He says, I always was, I always will be. As Jesus actually says of himself in Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and 
the last. And basically what we have here is the eternality of God versus the finitude of man. In other words, God is telling Job, Job, I have no beginning and I have no end. I was here before you got here and I will be here long after you are gone. God is telling Job that I am above and outside of time, but you, Job, are inside it and actually bound to it. He's saying, I'm not constrained by time in any way, shape, or form. In fact, you can't even fully implore those categories in conversation about me, for I am the Lord of time itself. And he says, I can make it stop when I get ready. You remember actually, you remember this, right? In Joshua chapter 10, I don't know if you guys remember this. People of Israel were in battle. Joshua calls out to the Lord. The Lord calls the sun and the moon to stand still. And you stop and think about that for a second. God literally calls the earth to cease from rotating. And from our perspective, that means he stopped time. And let me stop right there for a second and ask you, can your God do that? Can your God do that? Does your view of God allow for something like this? So when you come to a text like this, do you stop and say, oh, no, that couldn't possibly be true. I have to kind of explain this in a more naturalistic type way. God couldn't actually do something like this. Does your God, is he able to stop time or is he bound by it? Because if he can't, then it's a good possibility that your God is too small. But yet God continues to reveal himself and his glory, his bigness to Job. Keep in mind, he's still not answering Job's question in terms of why he's suffering. He's just showing Job how big he is because this is what Job needs to hear. And so what does he do next? He pits his omniscience against Job's ignorance. In other words, in questioning Job, he reveals to him, Job, I know everything and you don't. Just as simple as that, as that. And more than that, he's actually revealing to us that he knows everything and that we don't. Now, it's interesting that like up to, to, to a certain extent, this whole thing is a test of knowledge. You see, he actually opens up his speech in 38. What does he say? He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job, you're talking about what you don't know about. Let me come and tell you what it really is. So he, he comes in defending his case, Job has insinuated that there could be no valid reason for his suffering. Job has chalked it up that God was simply treating him as his enemy. You see there in chapter 13, verse 24, he says, God's treating me as an enemy. And you have to notice here what Job is actually saying. Job insinuates that because he can't think of a good reason as to why he's suffering, then there can be no good reason for his suffering. You, you catch that? Because I can't think of a good reason for my suffering, then there can be no good reason for my suffering. Are you tracking with the thought? And that is how you end up thinking yourself to be wiser than God. That is how you end up thinking yourself to be bigger than God is. So God, knowing this, right? Knowing this, he Ask Job a couple more questions concerning his knowledge. He says, okay, you weren't there at the foundation of the earth. So I'm going to ask you something about your knowledge, Job. Maybe you'll do a little bit better in this arena, right? So in chapter 38, verse 18, where he says, 
Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth, Job? And again, I can't go through all of this. It's just a list. If you go from 38 to 42, it's question after question. So I'm just going to hit the highlights. But he says, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth, Job? In other words, Job, do you know inherently how big the earth is? And it seems like a simple question, right? And Job doesn't know. (laughs) Job doesn't know. And he can't even pretend as if he had the equipment to even measure the earth. And now I can I know somebody, the, the smarty pants is going to say, well, you know, modern science now, we can probably give like a reasonable estimate for the, for the, the square footage of the earth and whatnot, and whatnot, I guess. Okay, but keyword there, estimate. <laughs> estimate. You have to admit that even then, only now, even from Job's time until now, We've only got a good estimate, but nobody has immediate knowledge as to the expanse of the earth in and of itself to the, to the point where you can say with absolute certainty down to like the last billionth decimal point of how big the earth is. Only God has such immediate knowledge of the creation. So Job's like stumped on that one too. He's like, yeah, I don't know that one. So God says, I, I'll tell you what. I tell you what, perhaps a question concerning the planet was a bit too much for you. Maybe that's too much for you, Job, right? Planet's too big. I should tone it down a little bit. So he says, I'll tell you what, I'll ask you something a little bit easier. So he goes to chapter 39 and he says, I'll tell you what, I'll ask you about, ask you about the mountain goats. <laughs> and everything within you, when you hear that, you're like, what? Is, this, is he serious? Is God serious? He says, the mountain goats. He says, do you know each and every time when a mountain goat is born? I'm paraphrasing. Or by extension for us today, he's saying, do you know of every single animal birth in the universe that's currently taking place as we speak? I mean, place, time, everything. Do you know it? And you think about that and you're like, yeah. If you start pondering, you're like, I have no idea, like, that's, that's, way, that's way too much. That's, I don't have that type of knowledge. And so these questions that are unanswerable to us, though they are unanswerable to us, they're like Friday night trivia questions to God. He's like, yeah, I know. I can tell you right now. I can tell you the spot. I can tell you the number. God is like, yeah, I got this. This is easy peasy. And this actually shows us the underlying issue with Job's complaints against God, right? You see, if Job can't even pretend to know the things that in some sense he can access in creation, right? Then how could he possibly think that he could understand the secret counsel of God? You remember Paul, after he gets done talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation, Romans 11, he gets there. And what does Paul do? He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? Does this sound like your God? Does your God know all things because he's planned all things? Does he kind of have to wait and see what you're going to do? He might not really know. He's trying to figure it out, and so he's waiting on you. Is that your God? Are his judgments, his plans, and his ways, are they sure or can they be thwarted by 
ignorant men and women like you and me. Because if he can, then it's a good possibility that your God is too small. So God moves on. This is all right. He didn't know about the mountain goats. So he says, let's move on to another one of my attributes, right? And I know this is heavy. This is heavy, like wave after wave after wave. And I'm just giving you the 35-minute version. Imagine how long it was for Job and God. Job literally only speaks for like, I don't know, a couple of verses at the beginning, uh, and halfway through between 38 and 42, and then right at the end in 42. So God shows up again, and he, this is the second answer now. And this is what he does. He shows Job his omnipotence. He says, all right. He showed his eternality versus Job's finitude. He showed his omniscience versus Job's ignorance. And so now he gets to his omnipotence and shows it in comparison to Job's weakness. So all throughout this answer, God is actually careful to make Job see that he is all powerful and Job is not. And two striking examples of this occur. I had to go to these two examples. Y'all probably already know where I'm going. So two striking examples of this actually occurs in God's second speech to Job. So the first round's over with, the the first half's over with, the fight's over, at least for the first round. Job's sitting in the corner with two black eyes. God's like, all right, Job, you don't, no, you don't, I don't really think you can last much longer if I stay in the ring with you. So I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tag in behemoth. He <laughs> says, I'm going to tag in a beast named behemoth. And I'm going to see, see what you can do with it. He's a creature, right? So at least y'all on the same level in that sense. Like he's a creature, you're a creature. You should be able to handle this job. All right, here we go. Boom, behemoth, here you go. So look there at chapter 40, verses 15 through 24. And God tags in behemoth. And I just want to go and let y'all know, I don't know what a behemoth is. As we're going to see later on, I'm not, I don't know what the next animal he's going to say is. As a matter of fact, none of my commentaries, nothing helped me out. It just says large animal unknown. So, and I think that's actually the purpose here. God wants Job to see, yeah, there's stuff that you don't even know about. So here we go. Now, the description of this creature, I'm not even going to read it all, but the description of this creature, of this creature is absolutely wild. So apparently he eats grass. For him to be as big as he is, he eats grass. It never skips leg day at the gym. It's got a strong core. It can withstand the pressures of raging river water, which means it's unmovable. And guess who can't do anything with it? Job. And neither can you and I, by extension. So since Job can't handle that, God's like, all right. I've introduced behemoth. Tell you what, I'm going to introduce you to Leviathan as well. Job, what can you do with Leviathan? And the description of this one is just absolutely terrifying. I mean, when I read it, I started thinking about Jurassic World. Y'all remember that huge, like, um, I don't even know what you call it. It was some type of dinosaur, but it was like a huge aquatic dinosaur. Then, like, jumped out of the aquarium and, like, ate, like, five great white sharks. I think it might have been big enough to eat. Anyway, this is what I think of. When I see this thing. And so if the behemoth was described as unmovable, then God says this beast is absolutely unstoppable. Look there 
and verses 7 through 8. When it comes to this beast, God says, chapter 41, that is, when it comes to this beast, God says, you can use all the weapons you want. You can use your harpoons. You can use your spears. You can use, I guess, by extension, your guns, he says. But if you lay your hands on this beast, I promise you won't do it again. Like God tells him, like, yeah, okay, you go ahead, but you won't do it again. And, and, and you look at a beast like this, right? You look at a beast like this that has to be so powerful, and yet at some point earlier, actually, in chapter 41, verse 5, I don't think they got the slides for this one, so don't worry about it. But God suggests that though this beast is like no match for, or though this beast is a match for us. We're no match for it. He suggests that he could actually treat this thing that, like a father would treat like a little teacup Yorkie or something like that. He, if you look there in, in, in 41.5, he talks about putting him on a leash for his girls and like taking them for a walk. And you're like, so God, you're really that much bigger than I am. And so you're like, all right, what's the point? And the point is, God's saying, Job, if you wouldn't dare to like even stir up such a beast as this, then why would you think that you could stand before the almighty God in judgment over him? The one who created both the behemoth and the Leviathan, who treats them as his pets and who could speak them out of existence anytime he got ready. And so now you're probably like, all right, we out. Job's like, all right, I'm out of it. I have nothing else to say. (laughs) I'm done. So why again does God do all of this? That's the question you probably should be asking yourself right about now. Why again does God do all of this? Does all of this just amount to God saying, hey, I'm bigger than you, so therefore I can treat you any way I like, including in a way that's unjust? Is that what's happening here? Is this just the the cosmic bully on the playground thing type going on? And I would invite you that the answer is no. This is not the point that God is trying to make. But the point is that oftentimes when we're suffering, and I don't know what suffering you may be going through. I don't know. But oftentimes when we're suffering, struggling financially, or with a terminal illness, or like an irreversible medical condition, or maybe even the loss of loved ones, that oftentimes we're so, we're so distraught, and understandably so, but oftentimes when this happens, we begin to pridefully place ourselves in judgment over God. That's what we do. And that is what was revealed in Job by the end of the story. And we can look now at as a response, the repentant response of a humble man is what I had titled this section. And I only gave it a little bit of time because God only gave it a little bit of time. But that's what is what is revealed in Job by the end of this story. You see, so you see, though his suffering was not caused by sin, we got to make that absolutely clear. Job's suffering was not caused by his sin. His suffering still had a way of revealing to him the sin that he didn't even know was there. And that sin for Job was that sin of pride. And the remedy for that 
is that we have to be reminded over and over and over again that we cannot ever presume to sit upon God's judgment seat in judgment over him. For he is God and we are not. He is big and we are not. He alone is the sovereign judge of the earth and he always does right even when you and I can't understand it. I know that's tough. This was a tough sermon for me. And sometimes our response might start as Job's did in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. You see halfway through, what does Job do? He's noticing how big he had made himself in comparison to God. God humbles him for that first round, and he's starting to shrink a little bit. And then the text says he vows silence. He vows silence. He says, I'm closing my mouth. And maybe that's where you are right now, right? You've been suffering for a while. You've been thoroughly humbled by God. You're done blaming him. You're just lost for words. You're like, I've got nothing left to say. I've got nothing left in the tank I give. And that's a good place to start, actually. But be sure that you make it to where Job ends up at, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. And this is where he finally repents. See, in these verses, Job confesses what he had such a hard time dealing with this entire time. And that was the absolute sovereignty of God that God had his situation and everything under control even when Job was suffering. Job has now come to the point where he can say, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But not only that, he is now drawn out from focusing so much on himself and his situation, and he looks up to God. What does he say? He said, I heard about you, right? I heard about you. But now my eye sees you. That's what he says. I heard about you, but now my eye sees you. And then he delivers that final blow, and he says, therefore, 42, and in verses of 42, 1 through 6, he says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, Job went from having a pride that questioned God's integrity to now learning to despise such a sinful part of himself that would ever claim to put God in the wrong. He completely forgets about himself and he focuses wholly on the majesty of God. And this was part of God's design in Job's suffering. He was, as one writer says, he was systematically reducing Job to size, deflating all of the excess pride inside of him, all of the things in his mind, every thought that made God out to be too small. My brothers and sisters, what are some areas in your life where you've made yourself to be too big and God too small? Is it your finances? Is it your job? 
Is it your relationships? Is it in evangelism? Is it in your theology? Is it in your knowledge of God? And and where does that need to be flipped? And as you think about that this week, remember that the same God who humbled Job with his majesty is also the same God who humbled himself in Jesus Christ by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. You see, God himself, the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, became like you and me so that we might be redeemed and made more like himself. Yes, the eternal God took on that which was finite. The omniscient God took on that which was limited in knowledge. The omnipotent God took on that which was weak and mortal so that you and I could be freed from our sins, including the sins of pride and self-sovereignty. That's what God has done for us. And it may be, I'm closing, and it may be, it may be that God will sometime, sometimes ordain suffering as the scalpel by which he cuts away that, that part within us that seeks to make ourselves too big and him too small. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, we confess that we have all made uh, you to be too small and ourselves too big. We've often put ourselves over and above you. And Lord, we confess that we are sorry and wholly inadequate to stand in judgment over you. I ask that you would humble us, continue to humble us, Lord, even through our suffering. Weed out and root out every sin, including the sin of pride that remains in us. And we ask that you would wholly cause us to be released from ourselves, that we might look from outside ourselves, Lord, and up to you, Lord, as the one who's bigger than we are. And so we thank you, we love you, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.